Do thou beseech him that was born of thee, O virgin Theotokos, for the supplication of a mother availeth much to win the master's favor. Disdain not the prayers of sinners, O most august one, for merciful is he and mighty to save, he that deigned to suffer for our sake. The hours have a specific structure. They have the same structure, all of them. Uh, three psalms, then there's an apolitikion, dismissal hymn of the saint or of the day, uh, followed by a theotokion. And, and this particular theotokion is that of the sixth hour. And um, when we talk about the theotokos, um, we have to uh, approach the topic of the theotokos with, with great caution and awe and in a spirit of repentance because she is the pure one and we are not the pure ones. Uh, and this, this Theotokion uh, says it all, seeing that we have no boldness on account of our many sins. We have no, by boldness, the, the, the Greek word is parisia. Parisia means freedom of speech. Boldness meaning the ability to, or freedom of speech, the ability to address our Lord, someone in authority in general, um, freely as a friend addresses a friend, as a parent addresses a child, as a brother addresses his brother, we have no such boldness. Not because we're not related to God, but because of our many sins, which have created a distance between us and him. So we have no boldness on account of our many sins. We ask Theotokos to beseech him that was born of her because the supplication of a mother does a lot to win the master's favor. Right, the supplication of a mother. So the she is our link to God. We turn to her who is the who is pure to supplicate for us to, towards God to God. Um, Disdain not the prayers of sinners, O August One. It's appropriate to disdain the the prayers of sinners, because sinners constantly contradict themselves. We say one thing, we do another thing. And so if, if it were us or me particularly in that position, which of course I'm not, and it's a good thing that, well, it's not a good thing, but whatever the case is, if it, if it were us in that position, we would probably turn away and say, these prayers mean nothing. Because these people that are uttering them are constantly contradicting themselves. But the Theotokos, of course, has a higher, has, has greater charity, more grace than we do. Um, and so we're confident when we say that she does not disdain the prayers of sinners. Um, and we're also confident when we say that God is merciful and he is mighty to save since he deigned to suffer for our sake. Right? So even though we constantly contradict everything that we say in prayer, the Theotokos still loves us enough to supplicate for us unendingly, unceasingly, supplicate for us before her son unceasingly. So we have a lot of ground to cover um, in the life of the Theotokos. There is one quote. Well, there's a couple of quotes here still in chapter two that I still want to discuss um, on page 12. 
Uh, it's the opening quote from chapter two, the Nativity of the Virgin Mary, which the church celebrates on the 8th of, 8th of September. It's from St. Andrew of Crete, who lived in the, in the seventh and the eighth centuries. Um, St. Andrew says, O bride of the father, immaculate mother of the son, and holy and resplendent temple of the Holy Spirit, O most chaste of all creation, most suitable to his ultimate purpose. On this account, the universe was created, and by thy birth was the eternal will of the Father of the Creator fulfilled. Okay, so this is something that we discussed very briefly last time. I discussed it in relation to the teaching of Saint Nicodemus. This is Saint, this is the source of Saint Nicodemus, Saint Andrew of Crete, who says that on account of the Theotokos was the universe created. On account of the Theotokos, that the entire visible creation was for her, because the eternal will of the Father of the Creator was fulfilled through her. That eternal will is the incarnation of God, God becoming man, uh, really uh, having both divine nature and a human nature manifesting both simultaneously without confusing them, without, in other words, mixing them, um, each retaining its characteristics, but being inseparable. This was the eternal will of the creator. Basil, you have a question? Yes, uh, so my question is in that verse there by St. Andrew. Yeah. Where he says, uh, on this account, the universe was created. So could that be uh, taken as, uh, not as a, like a prefigurement, but as like a, a postfigurement or something that kind of transcends time? Uh, of course, God acts and he knows things ahead of time, right? This is the, the mystery of divine providence. So providio, providence is to foresee. And so with providence, time is collapsed, right? Of course, God is beyond time and space. So time doesn't go by for God. Chronology applies to us um, because we live in time and space. And so um, th there's a lot of, in, in the patristic interpretation of scripture, even in the patristic interpretation of the divine image and likeness, um, the chronological order kind of is uh, compressed uh, because on the one hand, God creates the world, but at the same time, in a particular way, and at the same time, he knows ahead of time what's going to happen. And he knows that Adam and Eve will fall. And he knows that he will become a man. The Logos, the word of God, will become a man. But we can't say that had Adam and Eve not fallen, God would not have become a man. We can't say that because, first of all, it's contrary to fact. Uh, and second of all, there's divine providence. God foresees everything. Uh, and so uh, his, his, the eternal will of the creator is 
both what he intended to do and, and what he foresaw. Uh, those are inseparable. So what he foresaw, he intended. That doesn't work that way with us because we're in time and we don't know what's going, what, what the outcome of our actions is going to be. We start a project, we don't know how it's going to end up or we have an idea, but it, sometimes it doesn't go that way. It goes sideways, we say. Um, it's unpredictable. But, um, but with God, he's outside of time and space and foresees everything. Everything's compressed. In, uh, and so when we interpret these mysteries, um, the, the Holy Fathers, of course, who are enlightened by the Holy Spirit, remove the element of time. So in the creation of man, man is created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, many of the fathers have analyzed what that means. And they've looked at the nature of the soul. Um, and they looked at the, they've talked about the relationship of the soul to the body, uh, which is an image, right? The soul is an image, soul's freedom, our word, our wisdom are all icons, portraits of God. But so is the relationship of the soul to the body in the same way that God gives life, creates and gives life to creation, our soul doesn't create, but it nonetheless gives life to the body. But then other fathers have looked at, have stressed the anticipation of the incarnation. That Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, was created as an image of Christ, anticipating Christ. Um, and we know that there's the old Adam and the new Adam. The old Adam is Adam, the actual biological father of all human beings and then there's the new adam who is christ who regenerated human nature um but of course who created the old adam the logos the new adam uh, who at a moment in time later would become a human being and recreate the whole human race through his death and his resurrection um and so this is another this is an example of how you have this uh, from our perspective, it's an anticipation. Um, as, and as far as the creation of the universe is concerned, we have the Theotokos, who is the vessel of the incarnation. And the universe is the vessel of the Theotokos. So a vessel is created for what it contains. So the universe contains the Theotokos, the Theotokos contains Christ. And you have this, the ultimate purpose of the universe uh, is the... Um, incarnation of God and the Theotokos is serving, is, is, a, is a minister, right? Ministers, with, with a small one, to, to that end, ministers that mystery. And this, of course, applies ontologically to the physical universe. It applies ontologically also to human beings, but it also applies um, mysteriologically to Israel. On the next page, on page 13, um, there is a paraphrase of a teaching. Actually, it's a, I think it's a quote, a, a quote from St. Gregory Palamas. St. Gregory Palamas comments that for her sake, the God-possessed prophets pronounce prophecies and miracles are wrought to foretell that future great miracle of the world, the ever-Virgin Mother of God, generation after generation of vicissitudes and historical events make a path to her ultimate destination 
to the new mystery that will be wrought in her. The rites and laws had provided beforehand a type of the future truth of the spirit. The end, or rather the beginning and root of those earlier events and wonders of God is the Annunciation to Joachim and Anna, who were accomplished in the virtues of what was to be accomplished in their daughter. In another homily, he comments, all divinely inspired scripture was written for the sake of the virgin who begot God. That's a very important statement. The, this, first of all, it, it, this illustrates the, the difference between Christianity and Judaism because modern Judaism, not ancient Judaism. Modern Judaism is about interpreting all of scripture as referring to the nation of Israel, the nation of the Israelites. This is what the Holy Fathers talked about as interpretation according to the flesh, because they interpreted everything as applying to their flesh. And to this day, the Israelites, Jews in general, around the world, are very concerned about their flesh. In particular, about the genealogy, right? being racially Jewish, to the extent that they, you have to be born of a Jewish mother to actually be a Jew. Um, this concern with the flesh, not necessarily with the comforts of the flesh, but this concern about their, their bodies also extends to the, to the rituals. All the rituals are according to the flesh. And that, that means on the one hand, they're, they're just looking, skimming the surface and not penetrating deep into the spirit, into the essence of the rituals, the prophetic essence of the rituals. But also they're, they're always concerned with the body, the purification of the body, what they eat, how they wash, so on and so forth. But those are the benign aspects. The harmful aspects is the self-worship because Judaism worships itself. Judaism, Judaism worships the nation of Israel because everything in scripture uh, is taken as pointing towards the nation of Israel. There are, there are Jewish theologians that have argued that the suffering servant in Isaiah, that the Messiah is in fact the nation of Israel. Problem is that all these images that are in scripture that point to the Messiah Identify the Messiah as God. And so if Israel is the Messiah, then Israel is God. There's a self-worship. Right? This is, this is the, decept, the delusion, the plani of interpretation according to the flesh. Uh, the ultimate uh, end point of this delusion. Um, but the church teaches the exact opposite, that everything in Scripture... Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, and because it points to Christ, it points to the Theotokos. And so St. Gregory Palamas is driving this point home very clearly. The God-possessed prophets pronounce prophecies for her sake, and all the miracles were wrought to foretell the, the, that future great miracle of the world, the ever-Virgin Mother of God. And then you have these generations, because there's in the Old Testament we have multiple books. This also... Uh, goes over into the New Testament, especially in the, um, um, the Synoptic Gospels, you have this, these generations, these constant lists of descendants, fathers, so-and-so so so -and -so begat so-and-so, so on and so forth, 
from Adam all the way down to Joseph in the case of the New Testament. Um, what's the point of all that? Well, generation after generation of vicissitudes and historical events make a path to their ultimate destination, which is the Theotokos. The entire Old Testament, the history, the marriages, the children begat from those marriages, and then the rituals in the temple are all a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And as a preparation for the coming of the Messiah, they are a preparation for the birth of the Theotokos. Everything was for her. And in the subsequent chapter, there's a discussion about the temple. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in its place. But this is the key, the key to the orthodox interpretation of the Old Testament. What St. Gregory Palamas writes right here. He's in agreement with all the other fathers. but He writes it very directly. Um, and, and, and certainly St. Gregory Palamas um, is not only a great theologian, <clears throat> that he is but he's also an inspired saint he's not he's not merely listening to these things in church and then drawing conclusions from them he's also someone who has worked in his heart he's pr pr protected his heart he's purified his mind saint gregory is the uh, along with the other saints is the herald of grace uh, because he became himself a vessel of grace and so this is these aren't this isn't Saint Gregory Palamas's theory, his personal doctrine, but it's the expression of the entire experience of the church. And so the the rest of this chapter has uh, evidence that points to that basically proves Saint Gregory's point. The patriarchs and the prophets, and it's all all this evidence is taken from the hymnography of the church. It's significant, let me make a side note here. It's significant that a large chunk of this book is actually derived from the hymnography of the church. Um, now, some people might consider it a weakness, especially Protestants who, be who believe in sola scriptura, which means only scripture. Uh, but this is not a weakness, it's actually a strength. Because first of all, we don't believe in sola scriptura. We don't believe in only scripture. Of course, we believe in scripture, but we believe also in the first and foremost in the God who inspired scripture. And we also strive to follow the life that scripture describes, but the life also that scripture is the fruit of. Because the holy prophets and the holy apostles who wrote the books of scripture were not merely, uh, were not mere authors, poets, or historians, but they were inspired prophets and saints in whom the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in their heart because of their purity. And we say that in the creed, right? The Holy Spirit, Spirit spake by the prophets. Um, so we pursue that life and we honor those who actually attain that life. Those are the saints. And we also revere everything that comes from that life. Scripture, first and foremost, but also the rest of the tradition of the church and the liturgical tradition in particular. I would say that all of church history 
is one long extended ecumenical council. Obviously we have the seven ecumenical councils, which were particular events that were convened at particular times to address particular questions and their rulings are binding. But at the same time, we have the entire church as an ongoing ecumenical council. And this ecumenical council, the pronouncements of the church uh, is, are pronounced, are, are presented in liturgy because the, the words of prayer are also the words of faith, right? And so we have all this hymnography, this rich hymnography, which is an expression of the experience of the church, of the life of, um, according to Christ, the life in Christ, the life in the Holy Spirit. And it's through this hymnography that we have, the, that we get the, the keys of interpretation to interpret the events of scripture, but also to interpret our own lives and to come to understanding of ourselves and our own interior condition. Because aside from these theological teachings, the, the catechetical um, component of the church, uh, hymnography, we also have the... Uh, penitential side. Many hymns of the church are often public confessions, right? not specific confessions of specific sins, but public confessions of sins that occur to human beings and that many of us are guilty of, um, and that's penitential. And so this, the, the hymnography of the church gives us the interpretive framework to understand our own interior life and to see ourselves clearly to, see, to interpret scripture and to interpret ourselves. That's, those are two important takeaways from liturgy. Of course, the, the greatest takeaway is the grace of communion with God, right, through the, through the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. So we have all of these, uh, all this hymnography that demonstrates what St. Gregory Palamas was saying. So on page 15, the Old Testament types clearly manifest the Virgin Mary for she is the fountain of life that gushes forth from the, from the flinty rock. She is the bush springing from barren ground and burning with the immaterial fire that cleanses and enlightens our souls. This is from pornography. St. John of Damascus ad, adds to this chanting, inspired by God, the divine choir, the patriarchs and prophets of the, Holy, of the Old Testament, spoke of thee in prophecy as the mountain, the gate of heaven, and the spiritual ladder. Out of thee was hewn a stone, not cut by the hand of man. And thou art the gate through which passed the Lord of wonders, the God of our fathers. And the east gate, newly born, awaits the entrance of the great priest. Right? These are all images found in scripture that taken out of the context of the incarnation of God and the role of his mother in that, in that incarnation are in, impenetrable, cannot be interpreted, right? The bush, the, the burning bush, the fountain of life that gushes forth from the flinty rock. All these things are just miracles, certainly great miracles that happen in the Old Testament, but their meaning is only historical. But once put into, its, into the theological context of the incarnation, they gain theological meaning. They point to what will happen in the future. The, how, who exactly the mother of God will be and what her role will be 
the spiritual ladder, for example, seen by Jacob, where angels were ascending and descending. That's an image of the Theotokos. <clears throat> I'm going to skip over some um, parts of the second chapter, but I do want to talk about the name of the Theotokos. Um, of course, Theotokos is a Greek term. It's a, it's a title, not her personal name, the mother of God. Um, it's a title that was actually, um, the, the Third Ecumenical Council actually met and discussed how appropriate it was to call Mary the mother of God, the Theotokos, and they ruled um, that it's the, her most appropriate title because she gave birth to the Son of God in the flesh and thus became the mother of God. Um, but her name, Mary, which of course, Mary comes from Maria, and Maria comes from Mariam, and Mariam is just the slightly Hellenized, slightly less Hellenized version of Miriam, right? So Maria, Mariam are the Greek forms of the name, and Miriam is the Hebrew form of the name. And on page 17, there are, there's a discussion of what Miriam actually means. Uh, the list starts with lordless, which doesn't mean that she believes in no Lord. It means that she's the top, at the top of the hierarchy, right? There's no Lord above her, meaning there's no ruler above her, meaning queen, essentially. That, that's what lordless means in that context. Hope, the hope of the hopeless, we say. Myrrh of the seas or star of the seas, St. Jerome says this. Illuminated, beloved one, lady, lady of the sea, drop of the sea, exalted, highness, excellency, lady, one who surpasses or one who dominates. Right? Um, and then some translator says, give the meaning bitter sea. But this explanation has met with certain obstacles in Hebrew grammar, so on and so forth. There's a technical reason why it wouldn't work. But St. John of Damascus uh, says that the, the, the name Mary, Maria, means lady, which is the feminine of Lord, right? Um, uh, an exalted, uh, very important woman, right? And is analogous to the Greek word Vespina which is the feminine of despotis, master or mistress. Espina means mistress. For she became truly the mistress of all creation since she was vouchsafed to be the mother of the creator. Okay, next section talks about the indignity of our first parents purged through the Theotokos, how they were, all the human race, in other words, was benefited. Um, the infancy, the birth and the infancy of the Theotokos. Right? There's a question as to whether the Virgin was born in Nazareth or Jerusalem. And St. John of Damascus, however, who was from those parts, um, there's a question here. Galina says, I was told by a Muslim doctor to read the Quran so that I could know more of the life of Mary. Of course, instead I bought this book. 
Good. You, you flipped it on its head. Yeah, so the Muslims, it's interesting because the, um, you know, Muslims revere the Virgin Mary. Uh, and she's a very holy woman uh, for them. And as they do our Lord, but as a prophet, not as God. This is why many saints have actually considered Islam to be a heresy, right? Different from Judaism and different from, uh, and certainly not related to um, the pagan religions, polytheistic religions. Uh, Islam is a heresy because they do believe in Jesus, except they attribute to him the wrong identity. And they do believe in the Virgin Mary, except that they, they attribute to her the wrong identity. It's, it's, a, it's basically a step beyond Arianism, where Arius said that, um, the, uh, that the Son of God is a creature, right? Um, and so the Muslims are like, uh, Islam is a step beyond that. Uh, there's like the next step, saying that the Son of God is actually a man, in whom God perhaps came to dwell, but in the same way that he dwells in any other man, right? And then the, the other heresy of Islam is uh, the acceptance of Muhammad as a prophet, right? Which is not at all consonant with the tradition of the Old Testament or the New Testament or any tradition, it's just, it's just invented. Um, so this is why they say that if you wanna know um, uh, the, the life of Mary, read the Quran because th there are references in there. But of course, these are heretical references. Um, so there's a question as to whether she was born in Nazareth or Jerusalem. Um, and St. John of Damascus um, maintains that she was born in Jerusalem, that she was born um, in the Holy Sheep Gate. Because he says, the mother of God was born to us in the Holy Sheep Gate. Rejoice, O Sheepgate, the most holy temple of God's mother. Rejoice, O Sheepgate, the wall of Joachim's sheep. Now, St. John was writing, in, he was, when he was writing these hymns, he was at the monastery of St. Savas. And also, according to some historians, <coughs> excuse me, served at the cathedral of uh, the Holy Resurrection in Jerusalem. So he may have been familiar with an actual church there at the Sheep Gate. Of course, he was writing about a, a century after, a little less than a century after um, the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, nonetheless, was majority Christian at the time, and the Christians maintained most of the churches they had before the conquest. Um, so there may have been an active church at that place, or uh, within recent memory, there was a church that had been destroyed or, or demolished or moved. Um, by the Muslim rulers. But it says that, that he maintains that she was born in Jerusalem. Um, but it could be that St. Joachim, who was wealthy, possessed many residences, one in Judea, one in Galilee, Nazareth is in Galilee, which could explain why she was, um, the other tradition that said that she was born in Nazareth. Um, the infant Mary, according to the Proto-Evangelium, 
Proto-Evangelium. Um, there's the incident of her first steps, right? And so St. Anna put her down to see if she could stand. And she took seven steps and came back to her mother, right? Um, and this demonstrates, I think, the historicity of the, of the event. How would we know it's seven steps? And the great poets like Homer would have just overlooked this event, right? But this is such a specific event that it suggests that it's actually historical. This is part of a, an oral tradition that was shared by Saint Anna uh, with, with her relatives. Um, and the next paragraph is actually quite significant. And I wanted to talk about, I have it marked here to talk about. Anna made her daughter's bedchamber into a holy place a sanctuary permitting nothing common or unclean to pass through Mary. Anna then invited certain undefiled maidens of the daughters of Israel, and they attended to her, they attended to Mary also by carrying her about hither and thither. This is very important. Um, the, the, the context in which, and of course there's more discussion about this later, which hopefully we can get to, um, the discussion of the context of a child's upbringing, right? She made her daughter's bedchamber into a holy place. And we Orthodox Christians are empowered to do the same thing by turning the bedchambers, the bedrooms of our children into holy places with icons and vigil lamps, places of prayer. Because what happens when we find, where do we find rest? Well, in the bedroom, in our bed, right? That's directly analogous to the way that our, our heart finds rest in God. And so what happens to the body, by analogy, also happens to the soul. When our, when our body finds rest, when it's accustomed to finding rest in a pure place, in a place surrounded by holy things, then we're at least taught the lesson that our soul should, should find rest in God. So in fact, St. Augustine says that that's, that's what it's created for. It's created, it's always in motion. The soul is always moving around, thinking, but it finds its rest in God. And so we see this in St. Anna's instinct to make her daughter's bedchamber a holy place. Another aspect of this, a historical aspect, is that many ancient Mediterranean people considered the most important part of the house to be the women's quarters. That's the part of the house that's to be defended. The, um, the ancient Greeks called it the gynekonitis, which literally means the women's quarters. Uh, men from other families, even from other related families, could not enter that space, right? Because this was about the purity of the women, of the, of the young women in particular. Um, and the, the threat was that impure people would enter and pollute it and seduce and so on and so forth, destroy marriages, destroy the hearts of, of, of the young women. Um, and so the ancient Mediterranean people, ancient Greeks among them, in the example, um, the concept of the Unicornitis is from ancient Greece, uh, were very sensitive to this, to the purity of the young women. Why the purity of the young women? because they understood 
that the continuity of their nations rested on in the hands of mothers. St. Nectarios talked about this in the book that we, we read last time. Um, in the case of St. Anna, she was very concerned about the purity of her, her daughter's soul. And she allowed nothing common or unclean to pass through Mary. Right? She, nothing polluted, nothing from the, from, the, from the food all the way to the morality, nothing impure, only the best things. And then it says, she invited certain undefiled maidens of the daughters of Israel. Undefiled maidens, of course, is just a paraphrase of virgins, right? Um, and the, the, this is going to be a theme, of course, when she enters the temple, she's also accompanied by virgins. Of course, she is the queen of the virgins, queen of all virginity. So it's, it's very appropriate but we see Saint Anna cultivating this in her in her daughter, the relating to people that were pure in heart is what we're talking about, right? Relating to people that had not succumbed to carnal desires, because what happens is when we internalize the logismi, the thoughts of sin, when we conform to the will of the flesh, that doesn't, that doesn't only have an effect on our soul, it also comes out of our soul. It also imprints itself on everything that we do. In other words, we reflect back what's in, we reflect from our heart what's inside there to other people. And so surrounding children only with pure things, pure images, but also pure people, is what Saint Anna, that's what her instinct was as a mother, to protect her daughter, to great effect, because of course, it, it contributed to our own salvation, but it also teaches us a lesson. In particular today, when we are surrounded by not only impure things, but also impure ideas, images, people saying impure things. We have to make sure that our children are protected from these things because and it's very easy for a child to be exposed to something that's impure today because we have in our homes television sets, we have computers, internet, cell phones, which of course is the worst of them all because a cell phone could be taken in private and could, you could view things on a cell phone uh, without the knowledge a child can view things on a by accident most of the time, uh, without the knowledge of parents, and even become addicted, not merely to impure images, but even more broadly, just to viewing things, even if they're innocent things, uh, on a cell phone. And those things imprint themselves in the heart of the child. And then when the child is older, they come out, they manifest themselves, either in terms of thoughts or in terms of actual behaviors. And so when Sinana invited certain undefiled maidens, the daughters of Israel, to attend to Mary, the lesson for us is that we should, in fact, protect our children. We should surround them only with pure people, with pure words and pure thoughts. 
St. Joachim makes a feast. This is a detail that comes from the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, and it's illustrated on page 21, where uh, on the first birthday of the Theotokos, he invited um, the priests, the scribes, the elders, and all the people of Israel. He was wealthy enough to do this. He had a great feast. And he presented the Theotokos to the priests to receive a blessing. Now we know that the young boys on their 40th day were taken to the temple and received the blessing from the priests. Um, and so it, it's exceptional that this happened to the, to the Theotokos. Of course, she wasn't brought to the temple on her 40th day, but on her first year, the priests came to her, which we might say is superior um, in a certain sense, that they came to the person, to the child, who was the prototype of the temple, right? So these symmetries are very important. All the boys of Israel were taken to the temple to see the priests. In the case of the Theotokos, who was a woman or girl, the priests go to her, who is the prototype of the temple, right? The, the, it's a remarkable symmetry, um, but it's also very important as well because it, it, um, it teaches us that the Theotokos received grace from the church. We're talking about the church of the Old Testament, that she participated. Uh, and we know that she lived in the temple, but even before she was in the temple, when, as, a, as a small infant, she participated in the grace of the church. The priests of the, Old, of the Old Testament are the predecessors of the priests of the New Testament, who are the priests of the Orthodox Church. We only have a few minutes left, so let's jump to chapter 3, the entrance of the Virgin Mary into the temple. Um, and the author of here has provided more testimony from the Holy Fathers and from the hymnography of the church, telling us how showing us how the, um, the Theotokos has fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. There's, it's interesting how uh, also we have the hagiography of the church, the, um, the artwork of the church, which conveys um, certain meanings. Um, on page 35 and on page 37, uh, we have uh, examples of uh, church art, the, the icon on page 35 is by Theophanes the Cretan who lived in the 1500s and the, uh, art, the artwork on page 36 is from the Pamakaristos church. Um, today it's called the Fetige Jami in, uh, in Constantinople. Uh, and this is from the 13th or the 14th century, so from the 1200s or the 1300s. So the, uh, but you have these little portraits of the Theotokos. On page 35, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is being brought into the temple. And underneath it, there's a little table. Um, and there's a portrait of the Theotokos on it. Right? I don't know if everyone sees it, but basically you have the Ark of the Covenant, actually on the Ark of the Covenant itself too. There's a triangular kind of structure that the priests are holding. And on it is a portrait of the Theodokos. Um, on page 37, um, says the Theodokos is depicted in the sanctuary above the high priest Aaron and his sons, right? The 
artwork of the church is also an expression of the church as a constant, as an ongoing ecumenical council, teaching, revealing things, um, catechizing the faithful uh, in the mysteries of, uh, of theology and of scripture. Um, on page 37, where it says, at uh, the temple at Jerusalem, St. Gregory Palamas says, the temple of Jerusalem was the type of Mary, for she is the true place of God. The temple was to be the dwelling place of the divine glory, where the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate looking eastward, and behold, the house of the Lord was full of glory. And then the prophet was told, thou hast seen the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, in which my name shall dwell in the midst of the house of Israel forever. Right? These are all prefigurings of the Theotokos, the temple being the container of God, the glory of God, the glory of the Lord came into the house, by way of the eastward gate. The eastward gate, of course, is another uh, uh, image of the Theotokos, um, which which focuses on her, draws attention to her ever virginity because the, um, it says, let me find the passage here. Um, that the, the prince shall enter through the gate and it shall be shut. He shall leave the gate, he shall be shut. That the gate shall be shut. It will never, won't open for anyone else. Uh, this is, the prophetic utterance that reveals the ever virginity of the Theotokos because the, the Lord, the, the, the son of God became man in her, preserving her virginity. And he was born of her while preserving her virginity again. Uh, and then of course she preserved her virginity after he was born until the end of her life. So she's virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Um, the last thing I'm going to say here at least for tonight, um, is a discussion of, is we have these two diagrams of the temple on page 36 and 38, um, which kind of clarifies the, um, the imagery here and the, dis the, the descriptions that we have of the Theotokos coming up the stairs, right? On page 36, we see... Um, the stairs leading up to the temple, leading up to the holy place. Uh, and we, we read that the Theotokos ascended those stairs unaided, even though she was three years old. And she ran up the stairs. Um, the stairs were 15 steps because they correspond to the, the hymns of ascent, which are um, a group of Psalms in the book of, in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. But I think I'm going to stop here and um, ask for questions or comments on anything that we said above or anything that we've read or things that we haven't read. Um, I'm sorry, just lost my earpiece. Um, in this chapter or the preceding chapter. Okay, so I have a question. Um, yeah. uh, throughout the chapters, they have been quoting 
many of the verses from different um, chants that we that we have that we say on feast days. And on page 33, for example, um, the first paragraph there, it says, St. George ha then has the high priest speak to the young maiden and sing. And then it goes on to uh, express what he says. But the fact that that sentence says he then has the priest, high priest speak to the young maidens, does that mean mm -hmm. that this is something that St. George um, imagined was the conversation back then? Or were these things that, you know, these quotes that they share in these hymns, are they things that were revealed to them? Yes. So it's a good question. Um, because there's on the previous page, there's the whole dialogue between um, the Holy Prophet Zacharias, who is the father of the St. John the Forerunner, uh, and St. Anna, right? This comes from the canon, the feast of the entrance. So um, there's something called prosopopoeia in um, ancient Greek rhetoric. Prosopopoeia is personification. And so, well, it's personification, but it's also putting words into the mouths of historical, mythological, in this case, biblical figures. Rhetoricians did that. Uh, and when they did it, they didn't claim that those words were historical. Rather, what they claimed was that those words um, revealed the intentions and the thoughts and the mindset of the historical, mythological, in this case, biblical figures, right? So here we have um, St. George of Nicomedia. This isn't St. George, the great martyr, right? This is uh, the Bishop of Nicomedia, which is a city in Asia Minor. And he wrote the canon for the Usovia, for the entrance of the Theotokos. Uh, and he's doing this rhetorical prosopopoeia uh, where he is, you could say imagining, but imagining is too weak of a word. I think what you said uh, is actually better, that he was inspired. And so he has this non-historical but theologically valid dialogue that he wrote down, that he imagined, uh, uh, taking place between St. Anna and St. Zacharias, which Again, word for word wasn't said, but the words here reflect the uh, ideas, the sentiments, the mindset, the heart of the saints being depicted, right? Uh, this isn't the first, he's not the only one to do this. The, the most famous of all the holy hymnographers to do this is, of course, St. Romanos, uh, the melodist, and... Um, Anyone, of course, who reads the Hieridismi, uh, the salutation, um, the akathist of the Theotokos, the salutations, um, this is also what's going on in there. There are these dialogues that are, that are recorded in there that St. Romanos has not invented from a theological point of view. He has invented it from a literary point of view, right? But he's conveying real, real meanings and real um, sentiments that, that were felt by the people, in the case of the Akathist, the Theotokos, in the Archangel Gabriel, in the case here of the entrance, uh, St. Anna and St. Zacharias. So on, on that quote on page 33, you see St. George 
has the high priest speak to the young maiden, saying, Seeing the beauty of thy soul, O undefiled virgin, thou art our deliverance, thou art the joy of all. St. Zacharias didn't say that literally, but certainly, whatever he said, this was the meaning behind it. And this certainly is the significance of the historical event that we're remembering on that, on that feast. Thou art our restoration. Yes, when Theotokos was brought into the temple, that was a step along the way in the restoration of all humanity, through whom the incomprehensible appears comprehensible to me. Now, I think St. George is also inspired by the Holy Spirit when, when he reveals that the Holy Prophet Zacharias foresaw these things. He did. He's a prophet. Um, I, I really liked the, um, the observation that St. Zacharias here combined the priesthood with prophecy. Right? And, and the hymnographers of the church uh, use that um, fact, and they really draw a lot of meaning out of that interaction uh, and illustrate that meaning poetically. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Does it clarify things? Yes. Okay. What else? Did we ever establish whether Theotokos ever got to see her parents again or not? There's yes. some question about that. Well, according to um, our biography here of the Theotokos, she was able to see her parents because they would, they would visit her until they died because they were elderly. Um, and so they visited her in the temple. However, you would expect a three-year-old to want her mother. And you would expect a three-year-old to want to return home. The remarkable thing about the Theotokos is that when she ascended those stairs all by herself, unaided, without anyone just picking her up, I mean, I still pick up my daughter, she's five, to go up a few stairs because I, I want to help her, right? But she went by herself up the stairs and never looked back. And there is a... There is, again, a prophetic utterance in the Old Testament that refers to this. Um, it's the, Psalm 44. The Holy Prophet uh, David, who, of course, is an ancestor of the Theotokos. I want to find it here uh, so that we could read it. If anyone finds it before me, give me the page number. Um, it's on page 29, actually. Um, and so this is this the quote from the Psalms from the, from Psalm 44 is embedded in another patristic text. So it says, David the prophet, who is of thine own tribe, O lady and queen, mother of God, clearly foresaw and uttered. Here's the psalm. Hearken, O daughter, and see, and incline thine ear, and forget thine own people and thy father's house, and the king shall greatly desire thy beauty. That actually happened. The holy prophet David lived around the year 900 BC. 900 years later, one of his descendants actually enacted this. Not enacted it, lived it out. 
right? Hearken, O daughter, and see and incline thine ear, and forget thine own people and thy father's house. She was dedicated by her parents to the temple, and she dedicated herself also to the temple. And again, it says, the holy, the prophet king goes on to say, the virgins that follow after her shall be brought unto the king. Those near her shall be brought unto thee. They shall be brought with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought into the temple of the king. She was accompanied by a, a group of, of young women who, who carrying uh, lamps um, that led her into the temple. But it was actually the Theotokos leading them into the temple. Um, right? And the king shall greatly desire thy beauty. Something should be said. We'll talk more about the beauty of the Theotokos. Um, but the beauty of the Theotokos, of course, is chiefly inward beauty. And God is drawn to the inward beauty, first of the Theotokos, and then, because of the Theotokos, to us. Um, for it says that God is the mystical husband of the human soul. And in the way that a husband seeks his wife, so too God seeks the human, to unite with the human soul. Chief of all, the most beautiful of all human souls, and as it'll turn out, the most beautiful among all women ever, is the Theotokos, who drew God, drew God to herself, and he became man through her. So I think we could call it a night, unless there are any more questions. Basil. So just a, a comment on, uh, mm -hmm. just in regards to the emphasis on the importance of protecting children. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking this is probably why we have a lot of like psychotherapy that focuses on like childhood trauma and um, yeah, just like, it seems going back to what you were talking about with um, having television, cell phones and all this stuff, it seems almost like a low grade continual trauma instead of like one hard event. You're right. That's exactly, that's the exact, I think that's a very good way of, of, of seeing it because um, Certainly, it's trauma to the soul. We're, we're accustomed to thinking about trauma to the body uh, because, you know, we're, we're the, the, the material aspect of man is the most apparent to us because we lack the spiritual eyes to actually see beyond it. And, and so injury to the body is the greatest disaster in our view. But the injury to the soul is an even greater disaster. And the exposure to um, impure imagery is trauma to the soul. Um, and th those, th that trauma builds up. Imagine, I mean, think about the body. You know, one injury after another, eventually you're going to become incapacitated. Eventually you'll be handicapped. You won't be able to use your hands properly, your legs properly, so on and so forth. And the injuries start to build up our capacity for, uh, you know, full activity is reduced. Similarly, as the spiritual trauma builds, 
our ability actually to function normally, spiritually first, and then finally psychologically is reduced. Um, and the, the, one of the greatest dangers to children as far as imagery is concerned is of course sexual imagery, pornography. Pornography is ubiquitous. It's so ubiquitous that we don't even recognize a lot of it in terms of commercials, in terms of Hollywood movies, even so-called PG-13 movies. Um, also, I would even go so far as to say women's sports, even men's sports in some, in some senses, but the women's sports in particular um, with uh, semi-nude women performing, you know, playing whatever sport you're talking about even if it's track and field, which theoretically is a virtuous sport, um, all that stuff, we're, we're desensitized to it. And I, I'm not, and, you know, let alone the, the, the very bad pornography that's out there. And it, but it's all accessible. It's more accessible than it's ever been. Um, and that is a serious threat to the uh, spiritual well-being of children and it's a serious threat also to their psychological well-being because it destroys the soul. And psychologists, even secular psychology and psychiatry uh, are admitting this, that, that the, the seeing pornography actually creates, um, rewires the brain, creates you know, neurological and chemical issues in the brain. Um, and... It's very easy to get hooked, to become addicted. And then the, one of the outcomes of addiction is the inability to have healthy relationships. Uh, another outcome of addiction, of course, is depression. And so um, all these things, as you were saying, Basil, they, this, this onslaught, this flood of impure imagery and impure words not just the images though, we should also protect ourselves from the words. You turn on the television and you'll hear blasphemous uh, jokes, you'll hear uh, you know, sexual jokes, so on and so forth. All that stuff, all that stuff is, is damage to young children, it's death, spiritual death. Um, and this is why I think that the clergy should be much more vocal um, in, uh, in, in warning parents about the dangers of technology, audiovisual technology, the dangers of the, in, of the internet, the danger of giving children access to cell phones. Um, because, you know, with the cell phone, a lot could happen. Aside from just watching bad stuff, you could, um, there's communication that's going on that the parents don't know about, so on and so forth. Um, there's no reason for a child to have a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone until I was a graduate student. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I don't know why a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old would need a cell phone. Um, but all these things are very important. And, and, you know, technology is one aspect. The other aspect is education. Um, in, in many schools, not just public schools, but also many private schools, we have examples where uh, the curriculum is actually designed to... Uh, pervert uh, to to actually spiritually harm children, uh, and uh, you know everything from the normalization of uh, homosexual.
sexual relationships to the uh, you know homosexual marriage and adoption uh, to drag queen story hours that are happening around the country suddenly um, all that stuff uh, that, that's all very uh, uh, destructive and um, the fact that it's all happening all at once at, around us is another apocalyptic uh, sign I think uh, that, that things have gone sideways, sideways very far. Um, and uh, we have to be on the defensive, which does not mean that we're gloomy or unhappy. It does mean that we are wise, that we take the proper measures, but that we put our hope not on our own efforts, but our hope in the Lord. Right? We have to act with the Lord. There's cooperation. We can't say also, we can't do the opposite and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to pray about it. No, you've got to do it and pray, uh, and pray about it. Um, so what can we do about us parents who've already done damage to our children by letting them be exposed to all this garbage? Well, um, this is something that um, is, is, is a very difficult thing, of course, uh, but we should try to reverse the damage that's happened by, if, if possible, depending on the age of the children, uh, limiting access. If possible, cutting it off completely. Um, and of course, redoubling our efforts in our, in our prayer, pray for our children uh, and to try to bring our children to um, back to the sacramental life of the church because that's the damage done by this technology uh, and not just the technology but the images and the words that are con conveyed through the technology can, can be reversed it can be the damage is not permanent so in the same way that when our child falls and injures his body, breaks a leg, an arm, you know, cuts himself, when we go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, uh, puts them in a cast or stitches the wound or gives them the appropriate therapy in order to restore back, restore the body back to its natural function. That's the purpose of medicine. The purpose of spiritual medicine right, is to restore the soul back to its natural function. And the church has the therapies and the means, which is divine grace, to do this. Um, there is no one in this world that is, that, that is born into the world, uh, aside from our Lord and the Theotokos, um, who is not damaged in some way, uh, by uh, sin. Uh, all, the, all the saints of the church, again, with the exception of the Theotokos, were sinners like us. And through their repentance and through the sacraments of the church, they were able to gain back the health of their soul. Because that's the spiritual baseline. Spiritual baseline is the function of the soul according to its nature. And from there we ascend to greater things. From there the saints ascended to sainthood. Um, but, but 
the vast majority of people, of course, function at a, at a level that's way below the natural function of the soul, but it's possible to restore the function of the soul and to even go natural function and even to go beyond it through the sacraments of the church. So we have to take measures. We have to speak to our children. We have to warn them. We have, if we can, we have to control what they see, take back control uh, of what they see. And then we have to go to the church, which, which is the spiritual hospital. Okay, so okay, I one, one more ahead. question. This yeah. has to do with the iconography of Theotokos. Yes. Someone once told me that the reason why the more appropriate colors for her robes is red on the outside, blue on the inside. There's a meaning behind it. Like one is like divinity wrapped around humanity or something like that. Yeah. Did you ever hear of that? Or yes. Okay. Um Right, so the, the everything around the, uh, depicted in the Theotokos uh, and her icons, there are three stars often that are depicted on her shoulders and on her head, on, on, a, on the, her scarf, in other words. All of those have symbolic references. And so the, everything about the Theotokos revolves around her son, who is God in the flesh. And so the colors of her garment, her garments, plural, and the stars that are depicted around her, Stars reflect the, uh, the the ever virginity before, during, and after um, uh, the birth of Christ. She was a virgin. Um, the inscription "Mother of God." Everything is connected to her her status as the mother of God. Um, the the computer froze for a few seconds there, uh, Leonidas. So, did you answer the question about the colors? <laughs> yeah, they reflect exactly what you said. The, the, the incarnation of God, that you have, you have the divinity, you have humanity wrapped around the divinity, right? Uh, you have uh, God in the flesh. God became, uh, took on the red of our blood, right? Of, of human tissue. And, and, and that uh, was the way that we are able to interact with God and actually see him face to face because he's become man. And also the fact that that's, that's the, the means by which we commune with God because we commune his body and his blood. So then the Lord is, has uh, blue and red, blue, uh, blue over red. No, it's that, that's not the point. The point isn't that God is oh, okay. red or, or blue or anything like that. <laughs> well, so I know, it, but yeah, they said that it's, uh, it's more appropriate for Christ to be uh, painted and, Blue, his uh, clothes, his vestment, his uh, robes, is blue. Yeah, is often there it's a purpose the, for that? Off some iconographers, yeah, for some iconographers, is the inverse, right? The, the red over the blue versus the blue over the red. Um, that, that's, that's certainly a tradition in the church. Uh, and it's, it's the, 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 the two go together, you know, between Christ and the Theotokos. Um, so... Um, any way you look at it, it, it's supposed to remind us of the two natures of Christ and the, the actuality. Um, someone says that Theotokos in Hagia Sophia wears blue. Yes, she does. That's an alternate tradition, perhaps an older tradition. So these are not um, set in stone, right? It's, it's not, of course, we don't, we don't depict the Theotokos wearing green because that's completely out of the tradition, right? Um, but we have the tradition of the Theotokos wearing red and blue 
We also have the tradition of the Thothokos wearing purple and blue. We also have the Thothokos depicted in many um, uh, uh, um, mosaics wearing completely blue, right? Um, and so, but in the icons where you have the red and the blue, this is what it signifies. Thank you. You're welcome.